Our gospel lesson is from Mark chapter 5. We're reading from verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we are amazed by the power of Jesus in his tender compassion and in his ability to overcome death. We ask that you would convince us of his great power, and may we only believe and not fear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, one of my close friends recommended that I read a particular novel He told me that Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner was the best book he had ever read. I delayed for several years, and I don't know why, because I normally take this friend's advice without much question. But last spring, when I was on my bachelor sojourn here, I purchased Crossing to Safety and read that when I was free from my family. And so I read Crossing to Safety and was so profoundly impacted over those six weeks that I decided to read it again. It's the first time ever in my life that I've taken a novel up, read it once, and inside of the same calendar year, read it again. 
but it was just simply that uh, there was so much to absorb from it. Stegner tells the story. He's not a Christian, but he writes about two couples who journey through life together. They start in Madison, Wisconsin, where they were both English professors, and then their lives take many twists and turns through sickness, uh, through joy, through tremendous sorrow, through pain, and then they journey all the way until one of the spouses dies of stomach cancer. But during their long life together, they traveled to Italy, where both professors were on sabbatical, and they were going through the Italian countryside, and Stegner describes it just as idyllic as you can imagine it a beautiful spring day where there were blossoms in the air. There was incredible frivolity in their company. Long years together was yielding cherished time. And they went to a chapel where they were going to see a painting. It was Piero's The Resurrection of Christ. And so this painting was hung there, and they wanted to just take it in with all the other art they had seen. But the way that Stegner describes the painting as something perhaps surprising because it's not a victorious, triumphant painting. What it says, he says, if resurrection had taken place, it had not yet been comprehended. It's as if Jesus was getting up from the dead and the stench of death still on him, confused and bewildered by what had happened. And that's the look in Piero's painting, in the eyes of Jesus. Charity, one of the main characters, she's actually the spouse who later dies. She didn't like the painting. She was a positive person. She always was optimistic. She was looking for the brighter side of life, and she thought Piero had completely destroyed any value in the painting. This is what Stegner says. She was still developing her sundial theory of art, which would count no hours but the sunny ones. And friends, there's so much truth to what he says, that for so many of us, we know that life is filled with pain, we know it's filled with discomfort, we ultimately know it's filled with death, and yet we still are determined to ignore realities. And we are somewhat determined to only take in the sunny hours, that we want to be like charity, and just simply ignore the raw realities of life. Sigmund Freud, 1915, is a German, and he was working with World War I veterans, men who had fought and seen death and all kinds of chaos and destruction. Listen carefully to what Freud writes in his journal. He says, Is it not for us to confess that in our civilized attitude towards death, we must reform and give truth its due. Would it not be better to give death the place in actuality and in our thoughts which properly belongs to it, and to yield a little more prominence to that unconscious attitude towards death which we have hitherto so carefully suppressed? This hardly seems indeed a great achievement, but rather a backward step but it has the merit of taking somewhat more into account the true state of affairs. Freud, on the other side of his great psychoanalysis and all the work that he did to understand human beings, says this is hardly a great progressive step forward, but we need to take more into account the role of death. 
that we suppress it, he said, that we hold it back, that we're determined to keep it away, to hide it in homes, to have it far from us, to create euphemisms to talk about it. And yet, even Sigmund Freud was saying we need to give truth its due. What a great phrase. To give truth its due, to acknowledge death. And friends, there have been long centuries of Christians who've been determined to give truth more of its due. In fact, in some traditions, it's been common amongst the Puritans and amongst some English evangelicals to daily reflect on the fact that we die even seeing nightly sleep as a form of death, to meditate upon it, to absorb it. And this was not to be morose. It was not simply to be heavy. But in order to give truth its due, that death is a reality in the world, that it intersects every human life, that we can't avoid it, that we can't escape it, and that we must give truth its due. And while doing so, We have Jesus who enters into the scene. But friends, as Christians, we cannot escape mortality. We cannot escape our frailty. We cannot escape our weakness. We cannot escape sin that leads to all of the disaster and the tragedy. And that it does benefit us to reflect upon our mortality, to throw away the sundial theory of art, that Charity Lang possessed in Stegner's novel, and to take a more realistic view of our world, because on the other side of that is not just death, it's not just heaviness, but actually it becomes the path to life. And so let's answer this question. What does the knowledge of our mortality provide for us? We find this in Mark 5. And there's really two things that dwelling on our mortality provides for us. And the first is this. It brings us to the end of what we can control and manage. Jesus tells the story of two women. One is dying. For 12 years, she's been suffering from a hemorrhage. And one is a 12-year-old girl. For the entire duration of this woman's suffering, this girl has been alive but she's contracted some kind of illness and disease, and now she's dying. Two women on the brink, and a desperate father who comes to plead for his daughter's life. He comes to Jesus. And so the father comes, and in verse 23, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The man is out of resources, and he knows it. She's at the point of death, and you can hear his ethos and his passion as he comes to Jesus, and he's begging, looking for one last thing. Perhaps this great teacher that he's heard about, who's come back from the other side of the lake, can heal his daughter and save her life. And friends, the mortality of his daughter brought him to the end of his resources. He couldn't fix it. As the 
ruler of the synagogue, he was a man of means. He was also a man of social prominence. He could have had any number of doctors. He could have had the best care that the ancient world provided. And he was brought to the end of his resources. He goes to Jesus. And then we read of the woman with the hemorrhage. In verses 25 through 27, we learn that she had spent all her money on physicians. Somewhat humorous. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had And she was no better, but rather grew worse. This woman had given everything. She had extinguished her bank accounts. Health care was not going to provide for her. Twelve years of bleeding, anemic and weak. And as a hemorrhaging woman, she was cut off from society. She was considered to be unclean. She's desperate. She's filled with shame. She's a societal nobody. She knows that she can't control and manage life. There's nothing that can be done for her. And friends, that's what happens to us when we reflect upon the raw reality of human existence, that death is a real peace that we can't control, we can't manage, and we can't ultimately overcome the experience. And what it yields is a messiness You find that this synagogue ruler and this hemorrhaging woman both implore Jesus. They come looking to him, and mortality strips us bare where we have nothing left. And the only choices we have are to become hardened cynics and to pretend like it doesn't matter, or we can get desperately messy and implore Jesus for life. And so it brings us to our end. That's how mortality benefits you. It's good to come to your end, Jesus is saying. The second thing it does is it also champions our equality before God, stripping away our pretenses. These two people couldn't be any more different. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, he was a social religious insider, a powerful man, and this hemorrhaging woman She was a social outcast. She could not have fellowship with anyone. She was isolated for 12 years, if you can imagine the shame and the indignity that she suffered from that outside. But because of mortality, because of their experience, there was an incredible leveling that was happening. There was an equality they shared because they were out of resources. They had nothing that they could do. And so they come to Jesus in their need. We find that this wealthy synagogue ruler, this man of means, drops to his knees and he implores Jesus. He cries out to him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. And this is what mortality does. It brings us to our knees. It humbles even a man who has a great deal to be proud about. A man with great resources. It humbles him. And it brings him to his knees before Jesus. And we see mortality in the, in the life of this woman. In all of her sickness. In all of her shame. In all of her outcast. 
she says to herself, if only I can touch his robe, then I'll be healed. An incredible remark about her faith. And so she touches Jesus in the pressing crowd, and it's still one of the most humorous stories in the Bible to me, when Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? <laughs> he sounds a bit like a prima donna, uh, <laughs> but he was making a point. Because he knew power had gone out, that the woman had been healed, that the powers of new creation that live inside of Jesus had flowed to her and healed her broken body. She then falls down in fear and trembling, says in verse 32, and she tells him the whole truth, that she just wanted to touch him to be healed. And so this very humble, outcast woman became bold, but yet she was bold and yet still humble there in front of Jesus, looking to him, knowing that only he could provide what she ultimately needed in her crisis, in all of her pain, in all of her life coming undone, in all of her lack of resources now because she had spent everything. And that's what mortality does. It levels the playing field. It makes us all equal no matter how much resource we have, no matter how outcast we are, no matter how pride, how proud, or how humble we are, death ultimately humbles us all and puts us in the position where we can't control it, we can't manage it, and we can only implore God for help. So that's the great benefit of mortality is it strips you bare. Now, many people will say, well, how can that possibly be a benefit? You will so damage someone psychologically in being stripped bare and having no resources that no good could come from that. But friends, it's just dealing with the raw reality of life. This happens to us all. It is unavoidable. And the question is, is what resources do we have in order to deal with that very difficult reality of how do we comprehend, how do we interpret death. It's a wonderful book written by a man named Ernst Becker. It's called The Denial of Death. Becker was a professor at University of California, Berkeley. He's not a Christian. He was brilliant in the field of psychoanalysis. He contracts cancer and is sentenced to death. On his deathbed, he writes the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. He comes to the end of the book, and it's so curious, and he says, you know, human beings, we're like angels and beasts. We have a consciousness, and we inhabit the world we live in, and we understand that world. And yet, we're like beasts because we have to die. And he says, the particular curse of being human is that we know we have to die. And he says, every illness that comes, every mental illness that comes is a result of that, of that conscious awareness that we have to die. And so this brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning secularist says, Christianity, even though I'm not one, is perhaps the highest form of being able to deal with the neurosis that happens inside of us because of our knowledge of death. And friends, that's what Jesus here proclaims. As he enters into the shadow of death with a woman who is on the verge of bleeding to death 12 years 
and then of a daughter who actually expires. She's dead in the home. The crowds have arrived. And so what does Jesus offer to us, though? And how does He deliver it? Two things here. First, we see the compassion of God. It walks around in our broken and our busted world. Jesus very tenderly deals with both women. To the one who grabbed his robe for healing and life, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can you imagine no one touching you for 12 years, no intimate contact with anyone, not a hug or embrace, or they would be considered unclean? And then Jesus looks at her in compassion and calls her a daughter. Your faith has made you well. She has moved from being an outcast to now being an insider. She has been healed, and she has gained a sight of who Jesus is. It's a tremendously compassionate, tender moment. And friends, in the face of death, this is the medicine that we need. We need a compassionate and tender God in a world that's gone very wrong. And death was never intended to be part of it. But it's part of the curse that we've inflicted upon it because of our own rebellion against God. And now this God is doing something about it. In his compassion, daughter, your faith has made you well. And friends, it is that faith that looks to Jesus for the hope of healing and new life. And ultimately, it's the hope of healing and new life, not just in this world, not just in this life. But it is in the world to come, where God raises all things and makes all things new, that that is Jesus' resurrection power, because we are here witnessing in His miracles the ultimate power that would be exercised when Jesus goes under death, taking the curse of death upon Himself, and then He rises again, and new life and new creation has exploded. And because He has that power, all who are joined to Him will join Him in that new world. That's the gospel. And the compassion of God is to bring that new world. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And we see it also in the compassion where he arrives at the little girl's deathbed. She's there growing cold. The body's starting to set into rigor mortis. And Jesus says, little girl, I say to you, arise. The term for little girl they give us in the Aramaic because it's a tender term. It's something you say to your little daughter. He speaks to her tenderly and in compassion, and she's brought out of death. He overwhelms it because he has the power to do so, because he would take on death and defeat it. And so the compassion of God, this is what Jesus offers. And the second thing we see is he also offers the power of God recreating and healing what's wrong. He tramples down death because power goes out from him. And that is because God has given Jesus life. That the very life of God is in him. And that death has no claim on him because he is the righteous one. And death cannot hold him. And so friends, all of us who are joined to Jesus by his spirit, we have that same life. And even though death will claim each and every one of us, it doesn't have the last word. 
Because just as surely as Jesus said to this girl, little girl, rise. He will say to all his faithful who are in their graves, rise. In all his tenderness and in his compassion, in his infinite power, because of who he is and because he defeated death in his crucifixion and in his resurrection, he will trample it down. And he says to us, only believe, don't fear. And that's the question for the disciples through the remainder of the Gospel of Mark, is can they believe? Can they believe this one who subdued the storm and then subdued this demoniac man, 5,000 demons living inside of him, and now subdues death itself? Is he the Lord of all creation? Is he the one who has the power to put creation back on track and make it new and what God always intended it to be? And friends, our faith calls us to walk in this tension where we're honest and we give truth its due, as Freud said. We're honest about our mortality. We understand the tragedy of the world. We know how to lament. We know how to grieve. In fact, we should be the best at doing so. But the lament and grief is not it. That it is the hope that it is only believing that Jesus has this great power, and in his compassion, one day he returns to make it right, to make it new. Because, friends, we can't sanitize death. You can't clean it up. You can't put a euphemism on it to make it better. There's no way. But you can plaster this label across it. I say to you, arise. Because that's what your Savior will say. And all things will be renewed and made right. That's what Jesus offers. That's what's substantial about him in a world filled with pain. And so let's ask him to help us only believe. Don't fear. Only believe.